1: is Nick Simpson. Thanks for being on the show, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Nick is the founder and CEO of Simpson Building Enterprises, a real estate investment firm focused on multifamily assets. They specialize in value-add and new development projects in the Northeast and are currently developing an 86-unit student housing high-rise in downtown Salisbury, Maryland. Nick, thank you again for your time. I'm grateful to have you on the show. I know a lot of listeners who are very interested in in student housing are interested to hear what you have to say about, you know, obviously the current market market and how that if that's changed, you know, the student housing industry and just the thoughts behind acquiring those assets. But welcome to the show. I want to hear a little more about your your background getting into this, you know, the commercial real estate space. And then we're let's jump into your specialty and just the development side of this
0: business. Yeah. So started out with just a single family house. It was in disrepair, I guess you could say, did a lot of sweat equity. It was probably a thirty thousand dollar deal to purchase the it was a foreclosed house. And then we did a lot of Construction on it was about, I'd say about $70,000 all in and we started running it to, to college students and then one became two and then two became five and you, you know, just the, the typical story as you continue to grow. And we started to focus on multifamily assets because we saw the economies of scale and have really shifted away from the single family and sold those assets off and done a lot of 1031s into larger deals. And we're currently developing an 86-unit building in downtown that'll serve 300 students and it'll be the tallest building in our area it'll really be a landmark in downtown and we're proud to be a part of the revitalization that's going on currently in downtown
1: nice so you started with that single family how long ago was that and uh, was that you know just to kind of supplement your the job that you had at the time or was your plan to jump into real estate at the end
0: I started investing in, in the the housing when I was actually in school that was Eight and a half, nine years ago, and I picked up Rich Dad Poor Dad on a Saturday, and I think I finished it that you know in one day, and I it lit something in me that I had to get in, involved with it. I had started a landscaping company before that and sold it before I came to college to pay for my education, and I felt like I was going in slow motion, so I decided to graduate in three years, and I took that fourth year of the money that I had put to, you know put aside, and I bought a house, and then I didn't really know how I was going to get one or two or three. I just wanted to start and I ended up buying that first first house and there was a lot that came with it and I had to go through the subdividing process but I ended up selling that lot off for more than we put down on the original house so there was my down payment for the second one and it it just kind of started organically and it took a lot of uh, a lot of hands-on effort at that at that time why student housing you know,
1: was that just the way it got started and you just grew your knowledge base there? Or, you know, why why that asset class?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. In this area, student housing produces the highest income and it gives you really sustainable place to invest. In Salisbury, it's a state run university, so they're putting a lot of money behind it. You know it's gonna be in business for the foreseeable future. And we felt that student housing in this area performs Better than other asset classes. Multifamily does really well around here too, but we just found that the returns were the best for student housing in this area, and that's why we focused on that. And we've we really know the areas. A lot of the other sponsors in this particular deal, growing up in Salisbury, and, and have a lot of a lot of local knowledge that we can bring to the table for this particular deal. But in other markets, we're focused on multifamily.
1: Why development?
0: Why not find pre-existing buildings? There's two aspects there. One, we we do get the enjoyment out of it. And it is a fun thing to see a building come out of the ground. But the other side of it is sometimes the product we're looking to acquire is not in a given market. So, we wanted an urban style product to offer students that come from Baltimore, Northern Virginia, DC, Frederick, uh, New Jersey, in some cases, even New York. And they come to Salisbury and it's a rural area and it has garden style apartments. So, we wanted to give that 12-story rooftop bar, uh, well, rooftop deck and uh, cafe type of feel. to students who are used to having that and tend to leave after graduating and go to inner city. So, we wanted to give that to them while they're here at the university and that, that product just wasn't available. So, that was the reason we decided to develop this particular product. So the market and wh- what you feel is going to produce
1: the most returns, and then just because there's there's not this type of of building there is the reason why you like student housing and and the development side as well. I mean, it seems pretty awesome that you can recognize that and then just say, okay, you know, we're going to go fill that need. And how did you look at the market to know those things? Maybe you can give us a couple tips there to say, okay, you know, this is you know we can fill this type of building here, and we can go build this and, and make it work.
0: That. Definitely helps that we have offices and live and work in downtown Salisbury. We focus on other markets and, and tend to rely on outside information to make those decisions a little bit more. But in this particular market, we really have that insider track. We we can see the the pieces of the local government really pushing the downtown resurgence. They've spent tens of millions of dollars in the downtown area, revitalizing all the streetscapes, adding street lights. We've watched Sal- Salisbury, Maryland we watched Salisbury University, rather, put a building in downtown and they've really made a stated effort to, to link downtown to the university. And all those underlying pieces we've, we've gained from really knowing and living in the local market. So, while multifamily is definitely a focus in the area and it really does perform really well, we just felt like that the high rise was something that would be better suited for the student housing. The returns are higher and we can really... Put that unique product in downtown and be competitive for the long term.
1: So, uh, you know, I'd love to talk about the development side of this business a little bit, but I want to kind of jump on into you know the student housing asset class just in our current market, you know, and just everything that's going on. Just could you just you know just speak to that right now? I know the listeners wondering, well, oh, wait a minute, you know, I've been investing in student housing for many years potentially, and or I'm looking at it. I was looking at it, but now since colleges aren't going back the way they were, and you know, they're doing more virtual learning, things like that. How does that change the way we look at student housing? And just what are, your, what are your thoughts about that?
0: That's a great question. So we started with a couple different things. Let's start with the building and what the building needs to offer. And it was apparent before COVID, it was trending this way, but it's, it's really critical now that we've seen COVID become part of our lives. One is the bed-to-bath ratio. You have to have a one-to-one ratio and those are the buildings that are performing the best. So everybody has their own bedroom and their own bathroom. We've also seen the student housing market trend away from carpet anywhere in the units. So it's usually a luxury vinyl in the kitchens, the living rooms, and the bedrooms. And that just allows the students to bring their own rugs and, and then leave with the quote-unquote germs and you know, the stains and all that when they're gone. Uh, but we also have seen that study rooms on the property and gyms on the property are really becoming apparent. And it gives people the ability to stay and live on the property even during a potential shutdown and feel you know, feel like they're at home. The, the second part of that is finding the right partners to manage the property. And we're working with American Campus on this and they're the largest in the nation as far as management. And they have a national partnership with Lysol to provide the The uh, desanitizing stations. They have an opening protocol that really is robust for the cleaning, the gym equipment, and the lobbies, and the elevators, and just really making sure that the property is performing as intended. And it really is important in the harder times to make sure you have those people behind you to make sure that you're offering kind of what the students are looking for. And then the other side of that, we've seen some universities not go back, and we've seen some go back. And, And one of the aspects that we're starting to look at when choosing markets is, what exposure does the school have to a loss of income if they don't bring back students? So, at Salisbury University, about 40% of their income comes from on-campus housing, room and board. So, their exposure is, is very high if they don't bring them back. And we like that because they can feel the impact. And we've seen them come back this year, I think just for that reason. They're doing a hybrid approach where half the classes are online, but the other half like science classes that are hard to replicate are in person. So going forward, we'll probably be a little bit more conservative. We don't want to just pick a, a you know a really expensive school that might not be an ongoing concern. Salisbury University is quite affordable. It's about $20,000 for in-state room, including room and board. Uh, and I think it's in the low 30s for for out-of-state. So we think it's going to be an ongoing concern while some of those $50,000, $60,000 a year universities they might have a good endowment we're just not sure that's going to be positioned well for for downturns and just a lot of different aspects you really want to get granular with to make sure that the asset is is well positioned.
1: What's worst case there, you know, if if you have that building, students come back, you know, I've heard of one school that, you know, students came back for 10 or 11 days and then they, you know, sent everyone home. You know, what happens then? You know, you've got all these leases, how do you handle that?
0: Fortunately, we feel that when we open the building in August of 2022, knock on wood, we're all past this. <laughs> we don't have to have this as a as a talking right. point. But if it is here, uh, and that is something that we have to deal with, we've seen the off campus housing perform nationwide slightly better because they're not forced to return capital. And we've seen students want to stay at school because they don't want to do the COVID thing with mom and dad and quarantine with mom and dad. And the students actually stay at campus and they have their own bedroom their own bathroom and they uh, they happy living away from home but just doing the the classes virtually uh, certainly you're going to see a dip in your occupancy that's not not great that's where you want to run the sensitivity test you want to see what what it takes to push you don't want to drop rents too low cuz that hurts your uh, you know your future projections but it's definitely a a sensitive thing and if it really becomes something that's going to change the way just across the board, we're never going to have weddings. We're never going to have baseball, football, all these fun things we're not going to have in our lives anymore. Then, of course, multifamily is a, a backup for, for any student housing property. It just wouldn't perform as well. Hopefully, that's the doomsday.
1: Right. And anything else trending in student housing that, you know, that the listener should know about, whether they're an investor or whether they're you know an active operator?
0: The students are increasingly more interested in having fully furnished units than ever before. And we did a survey recently. This one's standing out to me because we just got some information back from the students. What's the, the number one amenity that they wanted? And right below, high-speed internet is fully furnished. And they really, really want to just come to school and leave it. They don't want to have to get the huge moving truck and and come to school anymore. And, and offering really quality furniture. I mean, it doesn't it needs to be robust and and sturdy to handle, you know, the student housing class, but you you do want to offer a decent mattress and decent couches that are are actually comfortable and doesn't seem like you're in an institution.
1: (laughs) Right. You know, I would think then though, it's kind of like you were talking about with the carpet or the rugs, you know, all that staying there. It's got to be something that can be cleaned easily, but something that's comfortable, you know, that's going to be difficult, right? And it it seems like as as they're uh, fearful of the virus or whatever it may be, that they would want their own things. But then I can see that being a problem of bringing all that stuff in and out from all these locations all over the world, potentially. You know, what are your
0: thoughts behind that? It's actually fun to pick this stuff and, and work. You know, American Campus really brings a lot of that data to us. And they, they show us some of their uh, their properties and how they perform with certain types of furniture. And we make sure that there's no, no surface that can't be easily... Cleaned with a you know something that you can spray on it and wipe it away. We don't do any cloth couches, or even the beds have like a a really nice covering around them that makes sure that really nothing's permeating into the mattresses, and in that way we can really wipe away those those type of surfaces. And that way we can use that for for the future. But we have seen other housing complexes that have those cloth materials, and they don't look good after you know after years, and that's definitely going to hit your capex if you're trying to. Keep up with that stuff
1: for sure. Let's jump into the developer side of the business a little bit. And, and maybe you could just highlight, I know, you know, just while we have a few minutes left, highlight, you know, just the track of the developer versus, you know, the typical syndicator or operator, you know, that we talk about a lot on the show. Developing is a, you know, it's a different beast kind of, you know, of its own. But, you know, I personally would love to know more about it as well. I know there's a lot of listeners as well. But maybe you can just speak to
0: being a developer, the differences that you've seen and learned. Sure. Yeah, the timelines are definitely more extended, typically. Uh, You know, getting a project zoned and then getting all of your blueprints and your construction pricing in place, that, that takes time. So, we started with this particular property. We wanted to make sure that we could have the highest building in the area. We wanted to increase the density and we wanted to have a walking bridge directly from the building to the parking garage so that all the students had somewhere to park. And all of that takes quite a bit of time to get approvals from the city. And then once you kind of have your concept in place, you get schematic drawings done with the architect. You don't need to get the full CD level prints completed. You just need to have a a general idea of what you're looking to build. And that allows you to go and, and get high level pricing. This is just kind of passing the sniff test. Once that checks the box, then you can invest in those... Really expensive blueprints, and that all has to be done well ahead of even talking to investors. So you know you're going to have to have those GP partners ready to to foot the bill. And in some cases, you could be talking many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars for prints. You know, for a building of this size. So once you get those are completed, then you get your guaranteed maximum price from your general contractor, and that allows you to pass the burden off. They have to have a completion guarantee at that price. They're, a guaranteed maximum price. Yeah. GMP. That That's what you want to obtain before approaching investors. Because then you can really say, here's what we expect to hit. We have a contingency budget. We don't want to use it. But if we do, it's still there. But the, the general contractor is on the hook for bringing that project in on time and for that price. Otherwise, there's liquidated damages. So
1: how close do you expect that to be You know, to that guaranteed price? Will it be right on it most of the time or do you expect it to be less?
0: So there's different parts of the construction phase that are more exposed to things going wrong. And that's truly out of the general contractor's control. And one of those major obstacles is demo. So we had 3 different buildings that we acquired and then consolidated into one lot. And we've already torn those buildings down found asbestos, we found tanks in the ground. All those are unknowns that you can't blame them for. You really do have to pick up the bill. But we've already taken that, kind of de-risk it for investors and we've already done that obstacle. Throughout the regular part of construction, you really don't want to see a general contractor go above, you know, three to four percent of a new construction that's really well fleshed out. You know, if there's really good good drawings, there's really no reason for the general contractor would go above that because you're getting all of your pricing ahead of time and you're really holding, you know, it's their job to hold those contractors to the task of getting it done. If you don't have drawings that are completed though, it really is not their fault if they're, if you're making changes in the field, that, that does cost money. So it can be dependent on the developer, but as, as well as the architect to make sure that you're, you're getting it done ahead of time. That way you can really lock in and investors can feel comfortable.
1: What does the team look like versus normal operation or syndicator's team?
0: One of the major differences is having we like to partner with the contractor. It's not necessary to do this, but we actually have the partner who owns the construction company. He owns the concrete plant that will be self-performing the concrete work. It really allows us to make sure that our timelines are going to be met. He can he can take away some of that risk. I mean, the, the structure of the building is one of the major parts of the timeline and having the ability to self perform that really allows us to to feel more comfortable especially with student housing. I mean if you're doing multifamily you come in a month late it's not as big of a deal. You can you're doing some preleasing but you're expecting to not be completely leased out before you start but with student housing August of 2022 I mean you call, I don't want to be calling 300 kids and saying hey you're coming late. So one of the differences is definitely having a a partner who understands the construction side of it. But the other side is we have developers in the team as well, so they've they've gone through the process. They they can bring different contacts as far as you know materials and just different sources for for flooring and cabinetry, and it really helps drive the cost down. So having developers on the team as well, I think is a little bit different than than your typical syndication.
1: Nick, what's been the hardest part of the the syndication process or or commercial real estate piece for you?
0: You know, I think this particular deal, we were a little surprised with the institutional level money or just the the funds in general wanting to see a minimum of 10,000 or 15,000 students at a a university where they're not looking past that at all. They they don't want to see or they don't want to invest the time to find out, okay, it's a state-run college and they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on the campus in the last five years. It's clearly a priority of the state. It's not going anywhere. They just lump colleges as a whole. Anything below 10,000, they're just worried is not going to be... In business for the long term. We feel you got to take it one step further. And that educational process has definitely been something I'll keep in mind for the future. I mean, nothing we can't overcome, but it was definitely an obstacle I didn't foresee.
1: Okay. And did you have to get different lending or go to
0: a different lender? Yeah. So the banking partners have been great. We just had to go further down the bench to raise the capital. And we're still re-piecing together some of the, the final aspects of our of our syndication on this, COVID was definitely a, a disruption. We were moving ahead in early spring, but decided to just hold the property as a demo. Uh, once the demo was complete, we didn't want to again call those students and say, "Hey, you're going to live in a hotel for the first few months." That that's not a good way to start. <laughs> so, with student housing,
1: how do you prepare for a downturn? Again, I think that's
0: critical to pick your management team well. Right? Watching American Campus work, we have we're not even. They're not even engaged in the property. They've kept us up to date with trends in the market. They have all the data behind it, and I, I really think that is the best piece of advice. I mean, sure, you want to be locally involved. You want to make sure that you're uh, watching what the school is doing, and you know, have a good understanding and good channels to get the information from the school. You really want to stay engaged and put the time in to get to know the people at the university that will be able to tell you the the correct information that I really think... And this is true, even with multifamily properties. The people you're working for or working with, the management teams are critical.
1: Knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently, say, on your first commercial
0: real estate deal? When I was growing, we were doing a lot of everything. We were doing... I was doing single-family student rentals. I had started to get into mixed-use commercial. I was getting into shopping centers commercial. It really was a lot of everything on a smaller level and the lack of focus didn't let me get really good at one particular avenue so student housing multifamily in a certain market that's the defined goal right now we're not deviating from that we don't want to look at anything else and we want to get really really good at that and then expand the market probably not expand the product type we know what we want and just expand what we or where we're looking rather than what we're looking at
1: so increased level of focus
0: Yeah, absolutely. What's the number one thing you've done recently to improve your business that we can apply to ours? Picking up Sam Zell's Am I Being Too Subtle? He is the top of our game. He's one of the best real estate investors out there. And his book is phenomenal.
1: I read that as well just a few months ago. So tell me, what's your best source for meeting new investors right now?
0: Right now with with COVID, definitely the social media platforms have been critical uh, getting the deals out there. Watching some deals start to do the the videos, we we added a video to ours to kind of like catch people's attention, you know, so it's not just one little, just a newsfeed article or something. We wanted to give something a little with a little bit more flavor. And of course, the the podcasts that just like yours are are a great way to get ears and eyes on the deal. Are you doing 506Bs or Cs? C. Yeah. want to make sure that we can discuss returns and get out. Yeah. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? I think it's probably this inner fire to make sure that over the long term, you know, it takes ten years to become an overnight success. Is kind of one of my favorite, uh, you know, sayings, and it doesn't happen overnight. And you know, I'm I'm okay with that. I'm okay for the long term being there. I just have to, you know, I, I am impatient, but I think the second layer to that is is adding the focus And I'm solely focused on real estate. This is all I do, and uh, being able to to pick this as my career has been definitely one of the biggest advantages, I think. How do you like to give back? I like to work with the Zacking Against Cancer Foundation. We lost a friend in, in high school to brain cancer and uh-huh. his foundation provides the care to individuals. It, there's a lot of money behind cancer research, but there's not a lot of money behind providing the people who have cancer, just the human, you know, their needs. And so, they they go and provide transportation to chemotherapy for people who don't have cars or they provide cleaning of the house or just the the, the random things that you don't think are a big deal until it happens to you and they they provide that support and they really do some some great things and and the stories behind it are, are phenomenal.
1: Nice. Well, Nick, uh, I'm grateful for you sharing that and and giving back in that way. That's interesting that they do need care or uh, assistance right Uh, along the way, as opposed to just finding the cure, which is extremely important also. But, uh, you know, I've enjoyed hearing just your, you know, the student housing side, the development side. You've really shed, you know, a lot of light on, I think, a lot of questions that I think the listener and myself have about that asset class right now, you know, and just everything that's happening. So grateful for your time. Tell the listener how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you.
0: Yeah, they can always get a hold of me with email at nicksimpson at com, or they can check out our website and that's just com.
1: Don't go yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I would love it if you would go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. I want to hear your feedback. It makes a big difference in getting the podcast out there. You can also go to the Real Estate Syndication Show on Facebook so you can connect with me and we can also receive feedback and your questions there that you want me to answer on the show subscribe too so you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, I want to keep you updated. So head over to lifebridgecapital.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with me, sign up on the contact us page so you can talk to me directly. Have a blessed day and I will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate
0: Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital.